Well, good morning. So the last few weeks, um, I've had, I've got to do something a little bit different, and I've really enjoyed it. Um, I've got to work with our youth group the last couple weeks, talk with them. Um, it, and I'm, should I put you on, should I put them on the spot? What have we been talking about? Big philosophical question. What have we been talking about? I, nobody can hear you. You're going to be way louder than that. I can't, I can't even hear you. She's not going to do it. She's not going to do it. Anybody? It's really working out, isn't it? Either that or stage fright's a real thing. You're just smiling. You know what the answer is. Uh-huh. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. What's the purpose of life? Like, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Why do we exist? Um, and we've talked about how we're here ultimately to glorify and enjoy an awesome God. That's why we're here. It's to glorify an awesome God and to enjoy his presence. That's what we're created for. And we've talked about what it means to really, what it means to glorify God. Um, because the word glorify, it, it kind of has this idea of magnification, like we're magnifying God, magnifying who he is and what he's done, and that's what we're here for. We're here to magnify God and to enjoy his presence. Like we get the privilege of enjoying the presence of God in our lives, which is awesome. We're here to enjoy a good God, but we're also here to magnify an awesome God. And whenever we think about magnification, we can think about it in a couple of different ways, Right? You can think about magnification like a, like a microscope. You're trying to take something that's very small and make it look bigger than it really is. So I, I have one, one picture in here that does that. Now this right here, this is, this is bacteria, okay? This is a picture taken from a microscope. Bacteria, which is very, very small. You can't see it with your eye. It can't perceive it. So you have to have something that magnifies that bacteria to make it look bigger than it really is, Right? Now, this, is, this particular bacteria is kind of nasty that I'm not going to get into, um, but let me just say, you get it in your body, you're, you're not going to want to be out and about. It's been linked to dysentery and that kind of stuff, so you don't want this bacteria in your body. Something very small, but we try to use something to magnify it so we can see it, so we can understand it. Now, that's one kind of magnification. That's not what we mean whenever we say we're here to glorify God. That is not what we mean. See, that's one kind of magnification, but... Again, that's not what we mean whenever we talk about God. We don't make much of God by making him seem bigger than he really is. Instead, what we mean whenever we say we glorify God or magnify God, what we mean is his greatness, his vastness is so big, it's so vast, that we can't, we can't take it all in. So instead what we have to do is we have to magnify different parts of his awesomeness, different parts of his glory, so that we can understand it a little bit better. Like this, this picture here, this, the second one here. Now I know that's really hard to see, and you may not see much. Well, that's because it is difficult to see. This is a picture that was taken with the Hubble Deep Space Telescope. Okay? And it zoomed in on a seemingly dark spot in the night sky, and all those little bitty spots, if you can see those little spots, those aren't stars, those are galaxies. Yeah, not individual stars, galaxies, which are made up of millions and millions of stars. And this isn't a seeming, just a small dark spot. They said that the size of this dark spot that they were looking at was about the same size as uh, one-tenth of what the moon looks like in the sky. One-tenth of what the moon looks like in the night sky, that's this dark spot that they zoomed in on that has all of these little galaxies that you can see. I say little galaxies, they're not really little, they just look little from our perspective. 
That's what we talk about whenever we're talking about magnifying God. Now, this particular picture, this picture, zooming in on that night sky, I think this is interesting. It took more than 11 days worth of exposure time, like opening it up, letting it expose to the light for 11 full days. Now, obviously, you can't just zoom in on one spot because we're spinning, right? We all know the earth spins. Earth spinning, so you can't just leave it open. So this actually required the Hubble telescope to orbit around the Earth 400 times, and the process of gathering these 11 days of light exposure took 114 days just so that we could realize there are all of these little bitty spots in the night sky that are really whole galaxies and other parts of the universe. See, God created all of those, knows every single one of them, knows every single star in each one. Our God is far too vast for us to perfectly comprehend, for us to perfectly understand. So whenever we talk about glorifying or magnifying God, what we're saying is we're like the Hubble telescope. We're here to zoom in and see something that's far too vast for us to see on our own and magnify it, blow it up so that we can at least, at least just vaguely understand part of who he is. That's what we mean whenever we talk about magnifying God. And that's what we've got to talk about as, uh, with our youth group. Um, to the point where we wanted to magnify God and we did something awkward. We walked around town and we prayed for people, um, prayed for homes, prayed for blocks, um, just prayed that people would come to know Christ because we want to magnify him. We want to glorify him and make his glory known. So what I'm hoping, what I'm hoping that you can see today as we open God's word, what I'm hoping that we can come away with is that the circumstances in our life, while at times they may not be a lot of fun, while at times they actually may be really difficult, These circumstances in our lives actually give us opportunity to magnify God. They give us an opportunity to magnify who he is, to glorify him. So that's what I want us to see today. We want to be like a telescope, just magnifying Jesus and his power in the world. Okay? So would you all stand with me? We're going to read God's word together. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 18, and we'll go through verse Verse 34, excuse me. It says, As he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, My daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Just then a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Then news of this spread throughout the whole area. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, Be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole area. Just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man, who was unable to speak, was brought to him. When the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowds were amazed, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, 
He drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. Now, I think that we can see from the very beginning that these people that approached Jesus, that came to Jesus or were brought to Jesus, they were dealing with some real difficult circumstances. I think we can know that from the outset. But we can see how Jesus and his power and his purpose was magnified through their lives. How people came to know who God is because he was seen very clearly in these people's lives. So that's what I want us to see. I want to see how we can magnify people, how we can magnify Jesus when we display faith in him in four circumstances in life. First, we magnify Jesus when we display faith through family crisis. Through family crisis. Again, it starts out by saying that as Jesus was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him saying, my daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, if there is such thing as a family crisis, this man was going through it. This man was dealing with a very real crisis. Like, I don't know about you all, but sometimes whenever I'm, I, I read my Bible, I, I just kind of get in this mode where I'm reading, I'm reading, okay, well, uh, this man came to Jesus, he says, my daughter just died, and I just keep moving. Like, I don't, I don't feel it. I don't think about it. Like, it just, my, my eyes pass over the words, but sometimes I don't take a moment just to really think about what was happening here. And if we stop and we just listen to these words, just listen to those words. This man came to Jesus and says, my daughter just died. I think we start to feel the weight of what's happening here. I think we start to feel the emotion of what's happening here. Now we know from Mark's account, Mark chapter 5, that, that she was a 12-year-old girl who had just passed away. And we also learn from Mark and Luke that she had not died until some point after this leader had left to find Jesus. Okay, But when he left her, she was as good as dead. She was not going to make it. So this man is truly going through a crisis. His daughter has died. But to really understand how this man's faith magnifies Jesus, I think we need to understand not only the crisis, but also who this man was. See, it's significant. It's significant that Matthew tells us that this is one of the leaders. That's all Matthew tells us. It just says one of the leaders. One of, one of the leaders came to Jesus. Now, that may not seem like a lot of information because it's not, but I do think it's enough. I think it tells us enough about who he is. We could go to Mark and Luke, and if we go there, we find that this man's name is Jairus or that this is, in fact, his only daughter. But since we are reading this from Matthew's account, let's just look at Matthew's account here. What he says to this first century Jewish audience that he's writing to, he says that this leader came to Jesus. And a first century Jewish audience would hear this word leader, which in the Greek is uh, the word archon. archon. They would hear this word and they would understand that this is a ruler, a leader, or an official. But we also know that Jesus is in or around Capernaum, which means that whenever they hear this, this term archon, they know we're talking about a synagogue leader, a, a religious leader. There wouldn't have been any government leaders in Capernaum, so they know this must be, this must be a synagogue leader. And if you go to uh, Mark and Luke, by the way, they tell us as much, that he was a leader in the synagogue. But Matthew's audience would have easily picked up on this. Now, while the Greek doesn't tell us for sure, most modern translations are so confident that this is, in fact, a synagogue leader, that if you read the NIV, ESV, or New American Standard, all of them are confident enough to say this is, in fact, a synagogue leader. This is a religious leader in their area. Now, why does any of that matter? Why does that really make any difference at all? This leader or this ruler comes to Jesus and he bows down before him. He kneels down before him. 
<laughs> Basically what he's saying through his actions, what this man is saying through his actions is that what his religious practices were unable to do, Jesus can. He says, look, I've tried everything. I mean, I don't know how many times he's probably prayed for his daughter. How many people he's called and asked to pray for his daughter. I don't know if he's laid hands on his daughter. I don't know what he's done here, but he's saying, look, all of my practices, all of the doctors I've called, everybody that we've talked to has failed. But Jesus, you can make her well. You can fix this problem. And this is a Jewish leader who's now coming and bowing down before Jesus, saying that, Jesus, you can do what only God can do. My daughter's dead. And if you come and touch her, she'll be made well. So this man expresses faith in Jesus. And in verse 19, Jesus and his disciples, they get up and they follow this man back toward his home. And it's here that Jesus encounters this, this I'm going to call it an interruption. And I don't mean that in a negative sense because it is an interruption in what he's doing. But not all interruptions are bad. But he experiences interruption that we're going to come back to in just a moment. When they finally reach the house, verse 23 says, He saw the flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly. What in the world is that? Well, that's a funeral. That's a first century funeral is what that is. It's not some quiet or sober funeral with a few tears shed here or there or the Kleenex boxes being passed down the row. That's not what this looks like in the first century context. You come to a funeral in the first century, there would be wailing and grief and sobbing that could be heard far away. They would actually pay people to come in and grieve over their daughter to make it to show, just show how deep their grief was. Um, D.A. Carson, he says it this way. He says, The noisy crowd was made up of friends mourning, not in the hushed whispers characteristic of our Western funerals, but in loud outbursts of grief and wailing augmented by cries of hired mourners. Like, just picture this scene. This man left as his daughter was as good as dead just to go find Jesus, who he knew. He knew Jesus could make her well. I know he can fix this problem. So he goes, and he comes back, and the flute players are there. People are mourning, they're wailing, they're grieving, knowing that his daughter is dead. She isn't going to make it. So Jesus walks up, and in verse 24, he says, leave, because the girl's not dead, but she's asleep. <laughs> the people do, I'm guessing, exactly what we would probably do, right? They laughed at him. The word, the word laughed actually means ridiculed, like they, they made fun of him. It's basically what it's saying. Like, first of all, this isn't likely the first time Jesus was laughed at, and it's certainly not the last time. But why in the world did they ridicule him for saying this girl wasn't dead? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, you know what dead means, right? Like, okay, Jesus just walked on the scene, just showed up, hasn't been here before. Jesus just now came in, hasn't ever seen this girl, doesn't know her personally, and he thinks he knows better than the clergy, than the physicians, than the family who's been there around this girl who knows she's dead. And Jesus walks up, never seen her, and just says, she's not dead. Okay, so you hear how that might sound a little off to us, right? I hope you hear that. So they made fun of him for that. But the second reason that they made fun of, they made fun of him, they laughed at him, they ridiculed him, is because Jesus, Jesus apparently, it seemed, he bit off more than he could chew here. Right? Jesus is this healer who's been going around different places, and sure, he's been healing sick people. And sure, he's been, he's been making the lame walk. And sure, he's given sight to blind men. Sure, he's done some pretty, pretty impressive things. But this is different. This isn't the same thing. See, Jesus was going to look like a fool because this girl wasn't sick in need of healing. This girl was dead. 
and needed to be resurrected, if anything. Yeah, this healer who just walked in, um, yeah, he bit off more than he could chew. So they made fun of him. See, ridding somebody of a fever is one thing. Raising the dead is another. Those are not the same thing. But Jesus, he throws him out. And then he does the very thing that a good Jew should never do. Verse 25 says, he took her by the hand. <laughs> okay. Contact with a corpse in the Jewish society would make you unclean. Would make you unclean. Whether that was a corpse for five minutes or five days, didn't matter. You were unclean. You don't come into contact with a corpse. And what does Jesus do? He walks in and here's this dead girl and he takes her by the hand. But like Jesus does, instead of becoming unclean because of the unclean, he makes the unclean clean. That was a lot of cleans and I hope you caught that. Y'all tracking with that? Instead of becoming unclean because of her, he made her clean. He raised her from the dead. Like, this girl got up, and the people stopped mocking Jesus real quick and started praising Jesus. They started spreading the news. And I think this is good for us to hear and good for us to think through just a little bit because this was a family crisis. It looks like there is no hope. Things are, she is, she is dead, it's gone, it's over. There's nothing anybody can do about it at this point. Somebody says they can help, well, no, no, you can't. You don't understand how dead she is. But Jesus steps in and he brings life where there had previously only been death. Like, think about that for a minute. How many of you have ever gone through a family crisis? You don't have to raise your hand. Um, because I'm sure most of us have probably gone through some kind of personal crisis in our families. Um, struggles that we think that there is no hope for. No way through. Hurts that can't be healed. Things that are stuck, dead, gone. Um, I think about it like this. I had a friend who called me not all that long ago. Um, and he, he, he had some pretty bad news. He said that uh, his wife had unexpectedly come to him and asked for a divorce. Um, he said, I knew things hadn't been good, but I didn't realize it was that bad. Um, and what I did with him on the phone right there is I stopped and I said, well, let's pray like, let's go to Jesus, because even though she's convinced that your marriage is dead and gone, there is still hope for your marriage. In the middle of your family crisis, what seems to be dead, there is still a possibility of life if Jesus is here. So let's go to him. And why did we do that? Why would we go to Jesus? Because just like this man learned, in the middle of this family crisis, and now understand, I'm not saying that this is all just a picture of somebody who was, well, is this really just a picture? Can Jesus really physically raise the dead? Absolutely, this girl was dead. But I think this shows us something even bigger than just physical death being reversed. This shows us that in the middle of our crisis, Jesus can bring life. So I prayed with this man, and I said, I believe that Jesus can do what you can't do on your own. Jesus can do what I couldn't do. So let's go to him. And whenever we display faith in the midst of those crises, in the middle of that crisis, it magnifies Jesus. It makes much of him and his power. Whenever we say, Jesus is able, Jesus, I believe you can raise the dead. Like, you can fix what I can't fix. That makes much of him and less of us. And that's the goal. That's what we want. So we magnify Jesus when we display faith through family crisis, just like this man did, just like this synagogue leader did. That's the first circumstance we see. Second, we can magnify Jesus when we display faith through health concerns. Let's rewind to that interruption I mentioned just a moment ago. Um, verse 20, Jesus and his disciples are following this ruler, right? And just then a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, 
If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Now, this woman had an awful lot of things going against her. Had a whole lot going against her. First of all, this was a woman. Um, And in this context, first century Jewish audience recognizes that a woman in that context would be viewed at best as a second class citizen. Um, They were not viewed as as important as a man. Certainly, they would have been viewed as less. So that was going against her. Second, she was dealing with the issue of bleeding. And we don't know for sure, but virtually every scholar I read agrees that this was likely some form of menstrual bleeding, which would have made her perpetually unclean, and she would have had no hope. That's according to Leviticus chapter 15, in case you're curious. So, a couple things going against her. Third, um, she's apparently dealing with some superstitious views here. She says, if I can just come up and touch the end of his cloak... Some others say the the tassels on his cloak. If we can just get up and touch the hem of his garment. Now, the hem of the firstborn was traditionally viewed as the part of the garment that would carry the authority of the family. Now, that sounds weird to us, but that, again, is in this culture, that's the way it would have been viewed. So this, this end of his robe, the tassel of his robe, carries the authority of the family or the authority of the man. So she sees this healer and just wants to touch his cloak because she says, well, that's where the authority is. If I can just get to the, just the edge of it, I might have a chance. I know I'll be healed. So she's dealing with some superstitious views here. And now, just to make things even worse, there's this big crowd following Jesus. This woman knows that Jesus is busy He's got other things going on. There's all these people around. He's not going to care about me. I'm on the outskirts of society. I'm ceremonially unclean. She doesn't have much of a hope, does she? But she pushes through, believing that if she can just touch his robe, she'll be made well. And I love this. She comes up, touches his robe, and it says, says in verse 21, that Jesus sees her. Like, Y'all just think about that for a minute. This unclean woman who's been cast out by society, she has no hope. She's, we find in the other accounts that she's been bleeding for 12 years, just like 12-year-old girl, by the way. Um, there, it's not a coincidence. This woman who's been dealing with this uncleanness for 12 years, 12 years, pushed aside by everybody she's come to, left with no hope, and it says Jesus saw her. This woman hasn't been seen like this For years. And Jesus turns in the middle of this crowd, in the middle of this sea of people, he turns and he sees her. He sees her. And the first words out of his mouth are, have courage, daughter. He calls her his daughter. Like, think about this. She's been pushed aside. Nobody cares about her. And he calls her daughter. All the while, this other man, he's waiting because his daughter's dead. He's lost her daughter. And Jesus calls her. This girl, daughter. And if you think about the emotion, the weight of this moment, I think we begin to understand. Because then he goes on and he says, your faith, your faith has saved you. Not the doctors, not anything else, not your superstitious views, not because you touched my cloak. No, he says, your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. Now, this woman doesn't really appear to be all that much. She doesn't really appear to know all that much. All she knows is that she's desperate and that Jesus is able. That's all she knows. She's desperate. He's able. 
So she's going to do whatever she has to do to get to Jesus. And Jesus commends that faith in himself. And regardless of how weak or how immature it may have been, her faith was commended. It may have been an immature faith, but she knew that Jesus was able. So she pushed through and got to Jesus. Now, understand, I don't want you to remain weak in your faith. Um, I, I don't want that for you at all. As a matter of fact, that's part of who we are. Like as a church, one of the things that we've talked about time and time again is that we want to see people grow in maturity. Like I want you to come to Jesus. And I, I, even if that means that you have a weak faith uh, and very immature faith, you don't know much. All you know is that you are a sinner in need of saving and Jesus is the answer. That might be all you know. It might be all you know. But I hope you grow in that. I mean, it's part of who we are. But at the same time, I don't want to overcomplicate things either. I think we often overcomplicate things. I'll admit I'm guilty of that. Should she grow? Absolutely she should. But whenever we come to Jesus with our physical concerns, with whatever faith we have, whatever faith, whatever understanding of who Jesus is that we have, whenever we come to him trusting that he is able, he will be magnified. And that's what Jesus says. He says, your faith has saved you. Your faith, believing, has saved you. This woman may have been socially marginalized, but Jesus used her life. Again, this woman who doesn't seem like much. Jesus used her and her life in such a profound way that we're still being encouraged by this, by this passage 2,000 years later. Like this seemingly insignificant woman who is dealing with this uncleanness thinks, Jesus doesn't care about me. But she knows he is able. She pushes through, touches his cloak. She's healed. And we're still being encouraged by her 2,000 years later. All because she displayed incredible faith in the midst of her health concerns. Look, I know that some of you are dealing with health issues. Um, as a matter of fact, that's something we've been talking about. That God would teach us what he's trying to teach us. I mean, we have a lot of people who have been dealing with chronic pain um, for some time now. Who have been dealing with illness, who have been struggling along, and we think, God, what are you, what are you teaching us here? I think part of it is, is simply this display faith even in the midst of these health concerns, and Jesus will be magnified. He will be magnified. So we magnify Jesus when we display faith in the middle of family crisis and health concerns. We magnify Jesus when we display faith through spiritual uncertainty. Through spiritual uncertainty. Verse 27, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men follow, followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. So Jesus raises this girl from the dead. And I personally, I think that this is a little bit funny. Maybe you guys don't. Um, there are these two blind men, after he raises this girl from the dead, there's these two blind men who start following him around. Um, I thought about trying to, trying to illustrate this just a little bit and why I think it's funny, but maybe I don't need to. But just, Jesus is walking. There's these two guys who can't see who are following Jesus. Like, I thought about blindfolding a couple of our, uh, of our teens and just being like, hey, follow me without being able to see where you're going. Because I think that's funny. So clearly they were guided by somebody. They had to have had help, right? I think we can agree on that. But here are these two blind men. They get up, they follow Jesus, clearly expressing faith. Clearly expressing faith as they go along, right? They're asking for mercy on themselves, showing that Jesus is superior. And they do this weird thing where they call Jesus son of David. Son of David. Now, this is the first time that this is actually conferred on Jesus by somebody else. Now, Matthew refers to Jesus son of David in Matthew 1.1. We talked about that months ago. 
But this is the first time another character in the narrative is actually saying Jesus is the son of David. Okay, And this is clearly a messianic title, saying that Jesus is the Messiah. So these, these blind men, they're following Jesus, saying, have mercy on us, asking Jesus in his superiority to show them mercy, but then also calling him the Messiah, saying, you are the son of David. And they get to the house, and they go inside, and Jesus asks, he says, do you believe I'm able? Do you believe that I am able? And they say, yes, Lord. Again, these people have faith. Like, they believe Jesus is able. I mean, it doesn't get to be a much more clear-cut picture of faith than this. In verse 29, it says that Jesus touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Again, why were these men healed? Was it something special they could do? Was it something special about who they were? No. No. All it says is that it was because they had faith. They believed in Jesus. They trusted him wholeheartedly. They believed and Jesus changed their lives. But what does that have to do with spiritual uncertainty, right? Up here it says that we can, we can display, like we magnify Jesus when we display faith through spiritual uncertainty. Well, first, again, just like I believe the girl was actually raised from the dead, I believe that this is two people who were literally, they were physically blind, and Jesus made them able to see. But what we need to understand is that the Bible often uses blindness as a picture of spiritual uncertainty or spiritual blindness. Um, I mean, you think about the Pharisees. Jesus calls them blind guides. This is a picture of not being able to see what was in front of them, this spiritual uncertainty. So, again, I believe they were literally blind, but this has a picture of a much bigger problem, a spiritual blindness. And these men, in this mess of spiritual and physical uncertainty, where do they go? They cry out to Jesus. In the midst of their uncertainty, in the midst of not knowing what's going on, where do they turn? They turn to Jesus and say, I believe that you are able to make what seems unclear, what I cannot see, you are able to open my eyes to it. You can fix this problem. And even though they were clearly told, <laughs> they were very plainly told not to tell anybody what happened or who healed them, uh, they go out and they tell Jesus, and Jesus is magnified anyway. Anybody else think that's funny? Like, Jesus again and again, he's like, hey, just don't tell anybody that it was me. And they're always like, next thing we see is they're like, hey, everybody, it was this guy. I think that's funny. Now, were they being disobedient? Maybe. But again, they came to Jesus in the faith that they had. And Jesus was magnified as a result of that. And we too, when we come to Jesus in the midst of any kind of spiritual uncertainty, like we're not sure what's happening, where God's leading, what's going on, we may not know exactly how this all plays out. We have an option at that point to say, okay, am I going to lose my faith? Am I going to now understand what I mean whenever I say lose my faith? Am I going to trust in something else in this area because I'm not sure of how this all plays out? Or am I going to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't know what's coming next, but I trust you. And you are able to show me. We turn to Jesus. And when we do, we make much of him. We magnify him. So we magnify Jesus when we display faith through family crisis, health concerns, spiritual uncertainty. And we magnify Jesus when we display faith through demonic opposition. Okay, verse 32. It says, just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. Now, this man... This particular man here in verse 32 is clearly mute. He's unable to speak because of the demon uh, that, that is in him. Now, not all mute people are demon-possessed. I hope you guys know that. I don't 
I don't think that's always true. The Bible makes a distinction between those who have purely physical ailments and those who experience this kind of uh, oppression. Now, also understand all of these things happen because of sin in the world. Because we have turned from God. Like, why do our bodies break down? Why do we die? Why do we experience cancer? Or why do we experience blindness? Why do we experience muteness? Why are our bodies not functioning perfect? Because of sin in the world. Because of our sin in the world. Because of people's sin in the world. Why? Because of sin. The world is broken because of sin. But in this particular case, this man couldn't speak clearly because of some kind of demonic oppression. It's plainly stated. It was because he was possessed. Now... I think that a lot of times we fall into one of two extremes. I think we fall into one of two extremes. Either we say that if somebody is dealing with something, we are very quick to blame demonic influence. I think that there is that mistake. Like every little thing, like, okay, everything becomes a result of demonic influence. Like, okay, so why, am I, why, do, why do I have cancer? Why did I struggle with a sore shoulder? Um, why is it that this person struggles with this, this addiction? Well, it's, it must be demonic opposition. Then there's the other extreme, however, that I think is also wrong. Those who say, well, none of it's demonic opposition. It's all, all it is is people made poor choices, and now they're dealing with the consequences of choices. Like, it, it can't be the demonic influence. It has to be the, they just made poor choices, so now they've got to deal with it. I think that there's a better way. I think there's a third way that says sometimes, yes, It is demonic opposition. Sometimes it's a result of living in a fallen world. And sometimes you make bad decisions. I think we have to understand that. Both of those things could be true, and we see both of those things happen in God's word. So I think both of those are possible. Either way, we are clearly told this man was being oppressed by a demon. Very clearly, he was being oppressed by a demon. And he was brought to Jesus for healing. What his friends must have known that brought him to Jesus is there was no case too difficult, no person too far gone for Jesus. Because this man had a unique obstacle, right? He was unable to speak because of this demon. This, it says that it was a mute demon for that matter, so he couldn't speak because of this demon. Um, how is he able to express faith if he can't speak? Further, if we, again, understand this the way that a first century Jewish audience would have, um, oftentimes, muteness and deafness went hand in hand. Somebody couldn't speak, it was assumed that they also couldn't hear. So how can Jesus command somebody who can't hear? How could a healer command someone who can't hear? So this is a pretty unique obstacle, but Jesus drives this demon out, which at first we're like, okay, of course Jesus did, this is no big deal, it's just another Tuesday for Jesus. Well, that's wrong. What this is, is Jesus doing something that no one could do. No priest, no rabbi, no one should be able to cast out a demon who was mute or deaf. No one could. It just wasn't possible. But Jesus does. Just think about this. If you can't hear or understand a command, do you have to follow that command? It doesn't make much sense. If you tell me to take three steps forward, but I have no idea you're saying it, how am I going to do that? So, Let's think about this from a demon's perspective. If he can't hear somebody call him out, if he can't hear this teacher, this rabbi call him out, then how is he going to obey that command? Well, that's why this is a problem. But again, Jesus does it anyway. This is one of those things that's been called a messianic miracle, one of those miracles that only the Messiah was supposed to be able to do. He commands even the deaf, even the mute that shouldn't be able to hear and respond, Jesus does it anyway. And the result in verse 33 was when the demon had been driven out, 
the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowds were amazed, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Right? We've been, I've been calling this power and purpose, this series, power and purpose. Like, you want to see power, they knew it. This mute demon, this man who otherwise couldn't speak because of this demonic oppression, this demonic opposition, now he's speaking. And they're amazed by it. Like, they recognize Jesus' authority as soon as this happens. And the people who recognize Jesus' authority were amazed by it. And it says that, you know, they say nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Just so you know, the implication means that nothing like this has ever been seen, period. Like, if this hasn't been seen with God's people, then who has? Nobody has seen this. This hasn't been seen anywhere. In this whole picture, it magnifies Jesus, his power in the world. His power over creation is clearly magnified here. To the point that those Pharisees, who have no faith, they begin to accuse Jesus of operating under Satan's power. Not God's power. Now, I wanted to dive into this just a little bit. But we're going to come back to it here in just a few weeks. Because this isn't the last time that this claim is going to be made about Jesus. Saying that, hey, this must be Satan's power. Oh no. We'll see how Jesus rebukes that later on. But the point is this. When we give everything to Jesus and we trust him, even whenever we're under the attacks from the enemy, even then, whenever we fully, wholeheartedly trust Jesus, we magnify him and his power in the world. So, we magnify him when we display faith. So what? Well, this comes back to our purpose. Like the purpose that we've been talking like we've been talking about with our youth group. This is a purpose I mentioned just a little bit ago. We exist to bring God glory and to enjoy his presence in our lives. And the best way to glorify God is to magnify Jesus. Make much of him. There's no greater picture of God's love and God's glory than the cross. Like Jesus coming, living a life that we couldn't live, dying the death that we deserve, and being raised from the dead. All because he has such tremendous love for us. Make much of that. And that will bring God glory. So we make much of Jesus. And what's more is that Jesus' presence in our lives, I love this, it's uniquely promised in the context of mission and going and doing what we've been told to do. Like, I've talked to people before to say, you know, I just don't really experience, I just haven't felt God's presence in my life. I'm like, okay, where are you looking for God's presence in your life? How are you trying to find God's presence in your life? Like, you're not experiencing his power. Well, what are you, what are you doing? Like, what does your life look like right now? Because whenever we think about the Great Commission, Matthew 28, um, I think it's in here, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus says to his disciples here, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I know that says the end of the age. Some add the very end of the age. Now, did you catch that? Jesus says, go make disciples. Make disciples. Go make disciples. And remember, I'm going to be with you. I'm with you as you go. Like, I'm there with you. Now, does that mean, am I trying to say that if you're not on mission, that Jesus is going to walk away from you and be like, well, they're not on mission, I'm done. No, that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm saying is that, that whenever we go, whenever we are on mission, whenever we're doing this very thing that Jesus commanded his followers to do, we experience his power and his presence in our lives in a very unique way. In a very unique way. So, go. Because we get to experience his leading, his presence, his guidance, his power in our lives as we're walking with him. So here's the thing. How do we actually do that? What does that practically look like? 
okay? If we want to magnify Jesus as we display faith, what does that really look like? Well, here's the thing. Nobody knows that Jesus raised this 12-year-old girl from the dead. Nobody knows that Jesus stopped this woman's bleeding. Nobody knows that he healed the blind, that he exercised authority over demonic forces, that he removed your cancer, that he delivered you from addiction, that he saved your soul from hell, that he adopted you as a child of the king, unless we go tell people. Nobody knows that until you tell people. Like, we share that with people. That's what we're doing. This is the beginning of that discipleship. Go make disciples. How does that start? You tell people. Tell people what God's done. And this is where we encounter God's power and his presence in our lives. When we display faith in him, then he's magnified, and then we get to experience true joy, true happiness. Look, if you've never been changed by the grace of God, like, I pray that you will. I pray that you'll realize that you are a sinner and that God loves you so much that he gave his only son for you. I hope that you understand that forgiveness is found in Jesus. Not simply because I want to put bigger numbers on the board back there, but because I want to see you saved from hell. And when we get to see that, we get to experience our greatest happiness, our greatest joy, because it's in Jesus being magnified. That's what we want. So if you haven't been saved, I want you to be saved. I want you to be forgiven. And if you have been saved, then tell people the amazing things Christ has done to you, for you, and through you. And in this way, Jesus will be magnified. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, first of all, for your power. Um, Lord, as we just looked at these amazing examples of what you can do in the world, um, if we believe this word, we will truly be humbled. God, again and again, we see you do what we can't do. So, Father, I pray that you would strengthen our faith um, as we come to you in whatever little faith we have. Lord, I pray that it would be strengthened again and again. Um, Father, I thank you that we can trust you in the middle of family crisis, health concerns, uncertainty in the world, or even when we're being attacked by the enemy. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith. Um, Lord, and for those who haven't ever experienced your goodness, they haven't ever, ever really had any trust in you, I pray that we would take our testimony to them, that we would go to the world, that we would make disciples of all nations, saying that I don't have any power in myself except for that power that comes with Jesus. Um, so, Lord, give us the words to speak. Give us a heart to care. Um, Lord, and just let us reach out to the community around us as we experience your power in our lives and your purpose for our lives. Uh, Lord, I'm so thankful that you saved me, and I pray that it doesn't stop here. Uh, I pray that we would be a church who wants to proclaim Christ. Um, so, Father, let us make much of you by glorifying Jesus, by magnifying Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen.